situations and some of that immunity thing has been compromised and I understand that. So please keep those people in your prayer. I, uh, I know that Laren, uh, not Sean's wife, she, she's got several things and there are others. These amazing people in Canada who are going to have to postpone a little while longer. I think when Canada comes back, we need to have a dinner for them and just treat them good and say, wow, we missed you and we're glad you're back. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Continue to pray. Petra, she's burying her mother tomorrow morning. I appreciate all of you that went and showed your respects there at the funeral home. And um, in Jesus' name. When I was 16, I read a little, I don't know if you could call it a book. It, it wasn't a hardback. It was, it was just uh, probably about 20 pages folded and stapled. And um, it, it was entitled, Is Jesus in the Godhead or is the Godhead in Jesus? It was written by a, an old gentleman by the name of uh, Gordon McGee, and uh, uh, he, was, he was an amazing writer, and, uh, and for years, yeah, there it is, we gave those books away when we did Bible lessons and Bible class with people, and uh, that's really, I guess if I had to point to a time in my life where things changed, that, that was it. I, I, was, I was reading that book in the little bedroom my dad built for me. We lived in a little two-bedroom house. And uh, my dad, being my dad, wanted to make it as nice as he possibly could for me. So he built me a desk and uh, built me shelves that I could put my books on. And um, that was kind of my spot. That was kind of my cocoon and my cave that I would study in. And I still remember, I still remember reading that book and having that aha moment when I realized what the guy was trying to say. And um, I was 16. I'd been raised in Pentecost. I had, a, I had a wonderful pastor. I, I really did. A, a very righteous, consecrated man. But he, he wasn't a student. And um, I, I didn't learn anything uh, technical about the Bible in, in the church where I was raised. It was, it was what I guess you would call the shallow end of the pool when it came to Bible study. The, the people prayed and... Uh, um, and, and that, of course, that's where I received the baptism of the, of the Holy Ghost and was baptized. And, and, um, but, but really, this happened on my own. And, um, and then I found a, a little book that my dad had by G.T. Haywood called The Victim of the Flaming Sword. And when I read that book, that... that that was when I made up my mind I was going to try and apply the, the discipline that I had developed in my life when it came to schoolwork. 
I was going to try and apply that same kind of discipline towards study of the Bible. And so um, what I'm going to do in this series of lessons is um, they're, they're basically the result of 40 years of, of a love affair with, with the Bible, personal study, uh, messages and lessons that I've heard other people teach, personal conversations that I've had with other people through the years. I, I am convinced more than ever, and as I've told you and tried to be as transparent as I could, um, uh, Haywood had this verse that just, he just, it was his mantra. And it was Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is none else. And I am God and there is none like unto me. Uh, said declaring the end from the beginning. And every time Haywood did anything, he always went back to the beginning. And, he, and, and the great preachers that I respected and tried to follow, I found that they did this again. My, my father-in-law, Brother Cook, who was well known for his love of the Old Testament, um, he, he always did that. Uh, 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 S.G. Norris, who was the president of the Bible school in, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, was, was that kind of man. And uh, I, I never did get to hear uh, um, some of the uh, other elders uh, um, but um, the, the ones that I did get to hear, this was the style of preaching and teaching that they did. And so I'm convinced more than ever that the Lord declared the end from the beginning. And, and G.T. Haywood said history was actually two words. It was his story. And, and I like that. And so from in the beginning to the last word, amen, uh, it's one story. It's one story. It, it is actually God telling his story. And uh, of course, one of the ways that he is described is the beginning and the end. And um, what I'm convinced the Bible is, is he is telling not only our beginning, but also our end. And, and there are many ways that, that the Lord used to convey his story. You have the law, and uh, that, of course, uh, pretty much starts in Exodus chapter 20, and... Uh, 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 you've got through 24, 20 through 24 in Exodus is, is basically uh, the, the foundation of the law. And 25 through 40 talks about them building the tabernacle. When you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law is expanded. And uh, then there, 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 there are books in the Bible that are considered poetry. Uh, the Song of Solomon is one of those. Uh, the Psalms uh, would fit into that category. And then there is a large, a third of the Bible is dedicated something called prophecy. 
foretelling. And um, then you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the story of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Then you have, of course, the book of Acts, where the church begins, and then you have the letters or the epistle that were written to the church that started in the book of Acts. And, um, but one of the ways that the word conveys its message is something that's known as a type scene. Uh, a type scene takes an event that is very common and well-known to the reader and uses this event that they're all familiar with to teach a spiritual truth. First um, Corinthians 15 and 46 says that spiritual things aren't first, but natural things and afterward spiritual things. So God would use natural things and use those to teach spiritual truths. Uh, the message translation says, physical life comes first, then spiritual. In other words, the event is the scene that, that is very familiar to the people that are listening. And this shared event is a natural example of a spiritual type. It, it is a, it's a time saver, what it is to the teacher. Um, I, I, I don't remember where I read this, but I agree with it, that educators take simple things and make them very complicated so that they can look good. But a communicator will take something very complicated and make it simple. And um, uh, you had favorite teachers, as I did in school, and these were the ones that could take a very complicated concept and just bring it down to where you could just grab it and they, they, we, they weren't all like that. And uh, this, this is where the word typology comes from. And, and one of these type scenes that's used extensively in the Bible is what I'll call the, the nuptials and the betrothal better known to us as engagement. And uh, by the time Jesus showed up, there was a very developed marriage ritual in the Jewish community. And this ritual was used extensively by Jesus and by other New Testament writers to illustrate their point. And this ritual gives us a beautiful outline for the prophecies that are woven through the Bible. And so what I'm going to try and do in the next couple of weeks is, I'll begin it tonight, I don't know how far I'll get here, but I wanna take multiple verses that you've heard again and again and again and make them come alive to you. And maybe for the first time in your life, you realize what they're really talking about. Because modern weddings are far removed from what was going on during the time of Jesus. Today, a couple uh, will hook up 
and, uh, and many times live together and even have children before they're married. We use a term, fall in love. And to many, it's just exactly that. It's a fall. And um, in the word, in the Bible, love is a verb. It is not a noun. We, in our culture, it's a person, place, or thing, love. But love in the Bible is, is action. It's, it's not this romantic notion that we have been taught that it is. In the Bible, it's about sacrifice and commitment. And it's not about self-serving pleasure. Even modern traditions, things that during my lifetime have been denigrated to, to a place where they don't matter anymore. Um, a white gown on a girl coming up a middle aisle. <laughs> I don't even ask anymore. But there was a time when I would just look at that girl and say, do you deserve to wear that? I realize we're trying to reach all different kinds of people. I'm not in the killing game. I'm trying to be in the saving game. And I don't want to embarrass anybody. But the tradition of a girl wearing a white dress is about a dad that watched out for that girl. And when she comes up that aisle and he is giving that girl to that man, he is saying to that, or used to be saying to that man, I've watched over her. She's pure. She's never been with another man sexually. But that's been replaced with scorn. Uh, once sacred vows are now replaced with... Um, uh, I'm going to write my own, Pastor. And I said, nah, I don't think so. And uh, who ever heard of a prenuptial agreement in the Bible? And the idea of one man marrying one woman for life is considered an antique in our culture. During the time of Jesus, marriage was the center of society, and it was a very sacred act. It wasn't about romance. It was about the uniting of families, the uniting of clans. It, it stabilized families and established a lasting peace for generations to come. It, it was about the will and not about this romantic notion that we so often have of love. When you go back to the beginning, the first 24 verses in Genesis 1 gives us a very quick overview of creation. And then, of course, 26 and 27, man is made. There's only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1, so after man is made, it's, it's wrapped up pretty quick. But then you go to chapter 2. And when you go to chapter 2, the narrative slows down. 
and, and repeats the creation and the beginning of man and woman. That God breathed the breath of life into Adam. The, the word, the original word for, is, is, is the best way I, the best description I found was the relationship between a craftsman and his material, like a potter and the clay or a carpenter and his wood. And uh, when, when God formed man, it says, of the dust of the ground, but when he breathed into him, this is a whole, this is, this is a whole different word, breathe. It's, 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 it's a very intimate term, uh, very similar to face-to-face kissing. God gave Adam being separate from himself. Thus in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. It's the only creative act of God that he said was not good. So he gives man a helper. Uh, Azar is the word in Hebrew, not help mate. It's help meet. It's important to note that, that, that she is made in verse 22, but they are not joined until verse 24. There's a time between her being made and her being joined with this man. And God himself, like the father of the bride, leads the woman to the man so that they would live in harmony and relationship with him and with each other. And just like every newspaper, if you've ever been around, I, 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 I had lunch today and I did something I haven't done in, I, I don't know how long, I, I, I knew I was going to have to wait for a long time on my lunch, so I bought a newspaper, $2.50 for a Detroit news. I couldn't believe it. And, and, and all it was was the front page, two other page, and the sports page, and a couple of, that's all there was for $2.50. So I won't be buying any newspapers again soon. But uh, I have been where they print newspapers, and they set the type. And, and then, of course, they, they print. And just like every newspaper begins with the type, being set. Adam and Eve are the typeset or, or the type scene for all other marriages. And this is where this biblical thread of the bride and the groom begin. There is no greater example of a covenant in the Old Testament than marriage. When you get to Genesis 24, you will find that marriages were arranged. This is the story of Abraham sending a servant to find a wife for Isaac. And um, you will find that there are common denominators in these stories. There was always a go-between, someone who was arranging this marriage. There was always, as near as I can tell, in every example, there was a well. There was an agreement that was made. There was always a meal that was shared. Then the bride's price was bargained for. 
And then the bride had to make a choice as to whether she would be willing to abide by this agreement that was drawn up. If she chose to abide by the agreement, there was a blessing. Then there was a veiling. And then there was a consummation. When you get to Genesis 29, you have the story of Jacob. There's a matchmaker involved here by the name of Rebekah. You're also going to find there's a well here. There's a kiss here. There is an agreement, a bride price that was agreed on. There was a meal. There was a veil. There was a consummation. Moses, you will find, also has a well and a meal and then a marriage. When you study the law, the marriage event grows. <coughs> you will find that the marriage always began with an arrangement. Usually it was the father of the bride who arranged the marriage and made sure that the family and the clan would benefit because of the marriage. A bride price would be negotiated between the father of the bride and the father of the groom. And this was not the sale of, of a woman, but it rather was a gift of honor that was given. That The dowry was, was actually a payment <coughs> of the daughter's share of the family inheritance given at the time of the marriage. Many times, part of the dowry was a group of coins. These coins would be attached to the bride's headdress and would become a symbol, much as a wedding ring does today. After the agreement between the, uh, the two parties, there was something called a betrothal. We would call it an engagement, but it wasn't like engagements are today. This, as near as I can tell, a marriage covenant had two parts. There was what we would call the betrothal, and there were the nuptials. There was an agreement, and then there was the actual event that would go on. The, they, they, they were promised to one another. An agreement was drawn up, and the rights and the responsibilities of the bride and the groom were made very clear. If both parties agreed to these agreements, they usually drank a glass of wine, and for all intents and purposes, they were married. They were married at the betrothal. He would then give a gift to the girl. And then there was a meal at the bride's house. And now the plot changes. After the meal, the groom would leave and return to his father's house. Usually he would not be back for another 12 months. His duty <coughs> was now to build a room attached to or surrounding the family well for his new bride. You see, not only was there a bride price, but there was a bride place. And it always had to be better than the place where she was coming from. While he is building this place, she is preparing herself. 
She would take the coins of her dowry and sew them into her wedding garment. She would also go to the temple to cleanse in something called a mikvah. I wish I had time to teach you about this, but when it says, and it filled all the house where they were sitting in the book of Acts, the word house there is not house. It's house of God in the original language. Because ancient Jerusalem had skinny streets. Modern Jerusalem has skinny streets. There was no place feasible, no place possible for 3,000 people together in ancient Jerusalem with the exception of one place. What was known as Solomon's Porch on the outside of the temple. When they excavated it around the perimeter of that place are 12 what we would call baptistries. It's what they were called mikvahs. There were four different purposes for these mikvahs, and I can't get sidetracked with all of that. But one of the purposes of a mikvah was when a woman had agreed to marry a man and he had left, she would go to the temple and she would wash and his name would be called out over her. She would go to this ritual cleansing and um, this is why Jesus asked Nicodemus. It's in John 3 and verse 7. Why are you so amazed that I'm saying to you, you must be born again? Because Nicodemus, being a Hebrew elder, knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. That this woman would go and wash his name of her groom would be called out over her and literally she would rise new. It was a washing, a cleansing, a public declaration of who I now belong to. Now you have a time known as sanctification where she was set apart. It's when a bride would take herself out of the potential pool of available woman, women and make it very plain she's off the market and she is preparing solely now for one person, one groom. Listen to John 3 and verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice this my joy therefore is fulfilled. There was someone known as the friend of the bridegroom. This is the groom's trusted friend. His not what we would call his best man. And the friend of the bridegroom, it is his job to teach and train this prospective wife. This is what my friend likes. Um, don't cook that. He doesn't like that. When you get married and you're living with him, we don't want you to have to say, what, I wonder what he likes. It was the job of the friend of the bridegroom to teach this woman what his best friend liked. Don't wear that. 
he wouldn't like then. <laughs> and as a side note, the greatest betrayal in that culture was when the friend of the bridegroom would seduce the bride into loving him. This is my job as a pastor. My job is not to get you to love me. My job is to get you to love him. To let you know my friend doesn't like that. My, does, my friend doesn't like it when you act that way, when you talk that way, when you look that way. You have already publicly declared he's the one for you. It's my job to get you ready. I know pastors that are only concerned about making sure that church kicks the Pope rate. They are just determined that that church is there to please them. I remind you of what Jesus said. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I didn't come to be ministered to. I came to minister. She's now waiting for the groom to return. This is what is known as the betrothal period. That's where Mary was found with child. You see, Mary, when she turns up carrying Jesus, could easily have been stoned for adultery. Or at least she could have been ostracized due to rape. Joseph could have sued her dad for compensation. But he was a just man, and the Bible said he wanted it to be done privately. He didn't want to bring him. Do you realize how great of a, Joseph apparently died very soon after coming back from Egypt because we don't ever read of him ever again in the Bible. But do you realize how great of a man Joseph really was when his engaged bride told him, I, 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 I've never been with a man, but I'm pregnant. I wouldn't have believed that story. But Joseph had a divine visitation. When the groom completed the place, he was free to get his bride. This is an occasion of great celebration. He would leave his father's house in a special garment. I found this verse in Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord and my soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. The friend of the bridegroom leads the way with a trumpet, a ram's horn that's called a shofar. He is blowing this thing and as he finishes blowing, he begins to declare, behold, the bridegroom cometh. The bride was now waiting to be carried off. When she heard the trumpet and the shout, she would put on her wedding garment, which she had kept and made sure was spotless. It didn't have a wrinkle. And then the best word I can use to translate into English, he would steal her from her father's house. Along the way back home, 
The road was lined with well-wishers, making music and dancing. Usually, she had ten maids. These maids would hold lamps in front of her and her husband, shining on the path as they were making their way back to her new home. It was a tremendous honor in those days to be a bridesmaid. So when you read Matthew 25 and you read of these foolish virgins who, weren't, who were negligent and didn't have the oil in their lamps to light the path for the one thing they were supposed to do, they were not permitted to participate in the event. She would go with her husband to this house that he had built. She would take off her veil and she would place it not just anywhere, but she would place it on his shoulder. No wonder it says, unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and thou shalt call his name wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. And of, it said, the government will be on his shoulder. And of the increase of government and peace, there will be no end. They would come to the marriage supper held at the groom's house. It was a feast. The purity of the bride was paramount. And without me getting too detailed, it was very important that proof of her virginity could be seen by all. The father of the groom would then bless the newlyweds. It is not by chance that Jesus began his ministry at a wedding and was actually the father in flesh blessing this event with his presence. So it was a big deal when they ran out of wine because you had to have that at that event. It is within the context of these last day's event, these betrothed and nuptials take great significance because Jesus began his public ministry at a wedding in Cana and ends with a wedding feast at the end of Revelation. This is not coincidence. This is intentional. This is a type scene. John makes it clear. Jesus would begin where it all will end, at a celebration. Humanity united with their creator in something greater than Eden. Because if Eden was the ultimate, then it would have only needed to have been reopened. But John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 talks about that as well. Listen to Jeremiah when he keeps talking about the day, the day, the day, the day is coming. A prophetic hope when the Lord is going to write all wrongs. Now, you may begin to understand why John the Baptist identified Jesus, not just as the lamb that took away the sin of the whole world, but John the Baptist very clearly identified Jesus as the bridegroom. 
and John the Baptist's role as the friend of the bridegroom was to diminish and the groom's light was to increase. It was time for the agreement to be made. And once the agreement was made, the type scene requires a cup and a meal to confirm it. This is the meal Jesus is having with his disciples. This is why in 1 Corinthians 11 it says, And when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he comes. This cup is the agreement confirmed with my blood. And Jesus fully agreed to the price. No wonder in Mark 14 and 36, he said, if it was possible, would you take this cup away? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will. See, the price for this wedding was tremendous. Peter understood this when he said, silver and gold are not, are not going to work here. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from the vain conversation received by tradition by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The NIV says, For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This is the bride's price. This is the cost in order to have this woman to be his bride. The blood would now be the garment that the bride would wear sewn into her vestments. The bride had to drink the cup also. And when they ate that bread and they drank that cup, those original disciples, when they, they had no idea what they were signing on for because years later, Paul is reprimanding the Corinthians when they forgot, they missed, they forgot the whole point of the supper. That when you are the betrothed bride of Jesus Christ and you drink the cup, you are signing on for all that that entails. That the bride and the groom are now promised to each other. And for all practical purposes, though they have not consummated and will not do that until he comes back to get her, they are married. And within that price was the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. No wonder Jesus told the woman again at a well, if thou knewest the gift of God, if you just knew what was paid for you, if you just had any idea what's going, this is, this is one of the, the, the woman at the well is one of the most tight packed events 
in his ministry because like all betrothal scenes I could find in the Bible, there had to be a well. But she's at the well at the wrong time. Women came in the morning and the evening. They didn't come in the afternoon. Men didn't speak to women back then, especially a woman like this. But Jesus speaks to her. And, and, and not only is she a woman, she is a woman of, of, of a hated race. She is half Jew, half Gentile. She's a Samaritan. Jesus throws all of that away and says, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. In type, he is saying, there will be a Jew Gentile host that will worship him. And he doesn't care which one you're from. All he cares about are, are you gonna be a worshiper? Are you gonna be a worshiper? John continues to build the imagery when he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. This is from the NIV, trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. He said, I am going away. Now, if you study prophecy in the Old Testament, this is the point the prophets missed. They saw his coming. They, 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 they prophesied about his ministry. They I forget how many prophecies were fulfilled on the cross on the day Jesus was crucified. I don't have time to get technical with you, but Daniel chapter nine has what's known as Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And if you're a prophecy student, there are 69 weeks and then there's a gap. Messiah will be cut off and the seventh week doesn't happen until many years later. This is what the prophets didn't see in the Old Testament. They didn't see the cutting off of the Messiah. They didn't see him going away. They, they, they missed that completely. But Jesus is very, very clear because he uses the nuptial type scene again and again to comfort them. One time the Pharisees are deriding his disciples and said, why don't your disciples fast? And he said, nobody fasts as long as the bridegroom is present with them. But when the bridegroom is gone, the disciples are going to fast. And he later explained to them, I'm going to go away. I don't expect you to fast now, but I am going to go away. And this is what Old Testament prophets didn't see. He then said that this was new wine and a new garment. Nobody sews a new piece of garment on an old garment. Nobody puts new wine into an old wineskin. Jesus left to prepare a place for those who agreed to the terms of the betrothal. He doesn't, this, you have to understand that the, while the bridegroom is gone, the bride doesn't just sit there and wait. She is obliged 
to act. She is obliged to learn intricately what her husband loves. And she's going to do everything in her power to please him. Now you understand the horror that came to that woman when she lost some of those coins that were given to her as a dowry. And she went through that house top to bottom, moving every piece of furniture, inspecting every crack and every crevice, finding that, that thing that was given to her as her dowry and as the price for her engagement and her wedding. She is obliged to act. You see, the bride is participating in the covenant when she agrees to be brought into the family by taking on the name. Because when he goes away, the first thing she does is go down to the temple and washes, and his name is called out over her. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and asks if this means you to me to be reborn naturally, Jesus, with tongue in cheek, basically looks at him and says, you are a respected Jewish leader, and yet you don't understand what I'm telling you. Just as the bride who had agreed to the terms went to the mikvah to wash and had the covenant name of the groom called out over her. We, as the bride, who have accepted the terms, go down in water to have the covenant name of our bridegroom called out over us. And you rise to walk, the Bible says, in newness of life. No wonder Acts 15 says that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. There is a man I've followed for years. His name is F.F. F. Bruce. He's still alive. He's very old now, but he's considered the foremost Pentecostal scholar alive in the world today. F.F. F. Bruce always translates Acts 15 and 17 like this, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom his name is called over in baptism. Baptism is a washing. That's why you will read in Acts 22, and now why tearest thou? Arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sins. It's why Romans 6 and 4 said that we are buried with him by baptism and that we would rise to walk in newness of life. No wonder while Paul was teaching about husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, he describes the bride as being washed with the water of the word because the bride is cleansed by speaking the name of her bridegroom over her in baptism, just as we were cleansed when we were washed in water and had the name of the Lord called out over us. This is what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 6 and 11, and such were some of you, but you're washed, you're washed. Remember the type scene. Once she is betrothed, she has to be cleansed, then sanctified, which means she's set apart. She's not available to any other lover. She's not available to any other potential suitor. She, she, she has been made right by spoken words. She is married, but not together. Set apart, waiting to be stolen. And this is the hard part, the waiting. Just as so many of the prophets did not see him cut off, 
There was to be an interlude between his leaving and his triumphant return. So the angels in Acts chapter 1 said to the befuddled crew at the top of the hill, Why are you gazing into the heavens? He that went away is coming again in like manner. And until he comes back, you should go to Jerusalem and receive the promise that he has promised unto you. John does the same thing as Jesus. He uses the type scene. He is saying, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. But until then, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you a down payment. I'm going to give you what Ephesians calls the earnest of our inheritance. Is there anybody here tonight that's been filled with the Holy Ghost? Would you just shout yes? Do you get what I'm trying to say to you? That once you have been filled with the Holy Ghost, you are a walking, talking billboard that says he's coming back. He's coming back because the reason I have the Holy Ghost in the first place is it was to comfort me while I was waiting for my bridegroom to come back. Oh, if there was ever a time to be full of the Holy Ghost right now. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm tired of hearing people say flatten the curve. I say let's flatten the fear. When this is all, this is a trial run. This isn't the last game. This is a trial run, this corona thing. And I want to know, what did it bring out in you? Did it bring out your best or did it bring out your worst? Did it bring out your kindness and your graciousness? I got you a Bible. I'm going to preach it to you Sunday. I don't want to say it to you now. I just tell you right now, you got to look at this. And when we're through this thing in a couple months, you got to be able to look back over your shoulder and say, I carried myself with class. My prayer didn't diminish. My worship didn't stop. I did everything I knew how to magnify God in very difficult times. And I'm not here to harm anybody, but I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And it's my job to teach you. And I want you to understand something. If you got a sour attitude right now, you're doing the wrong thing. If you got a bad attitude, you're doing the wrong thing. This thing is supposed to bring out the goodness inside of us. And that's not possible unless you're full of the Holy Ghost. Because if you're not full of the Holy Ghost right now, there's no comfort in you. You're afraid. It doesn't just say pray. It says watch and pray. Matthew 26, 41. Mark 15, 33. Luke 21, 36. Here's Ephesians 6 and 18. Praying with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching. Here's Colossians 4 and 2. Continued in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Here's 1 Peter 4 and 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. Watch and pray. In other words, vigilance is going to be required right now 
you got to keep your eyes open. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the orange angel, with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He's coming back the same way that he left. There's going to be a shout. There's going to be a trumpet. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Amen. Paul in the book of Thessalonians, talks about we were caught up. The Greek word is harpazo. It means force and suddenness. The best way to translate it is a violent snatching. He is coming to steal his bride to fulfill his promise. My bride's going to be with me forever. That where I am, you may be also. It's called the parousia, the coming it contains all of these announcements. The trumpet, the friend of the bridegroom shouting, the shouting descent, the group that goes out to meet him, the wise virgins who still got some oil in their lamp that are not negligent in their preparation because the bride is waiting the call and has kept herself for the groom. And when he takes his bride, there will be a wedding feast. That's why, listen to this verse. I, when I read this today, I, I could have run around in my office. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's at that last shepherd. He said, this is the last time here we're going to be doing this. But it's not the last time. We're going to do it again. And the next time we do it, we're going to do it in my house that I prepared for you. <laughs> Stand. And when that happens, and when the bride goes to be with the Lord, just as that other bride would take her veil and put it on his shoulder, the Bible said of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no Stay clean. Stay consecrated. You've been washed. You've got the comforter inside of you. I'm doing my best to keep you ready and watching, but he's coming. And you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss the trumpet. You don't want to miss the voice of the midnight preacher. The bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom didn't say that. Somebody other than the foolish virgins and the bridegroom, that's the purpose of the church. Because when you get to the end, I read it wrong for years. At the end of that book, it says, the spirit and the bride say come. I always thought that meant the church would be in harmony with the spirit of the Holy Ghost and trying to attract people to come into church. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that the church moved on by the Holy Ghost is going to pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. I've kept myself. I've done my best. I kept the coins. I swept the house. I didn't lose any of it in the house. 
I kept my life pure. I did the best I could to stay consecrated unto you because I don't belong to anybody else. I belong to him. I belong to him. And I beg you, I appeal to you, give yourself in prayer. Give yourself to the word. We are on the verge of something magnificent or something terrible. It just depends on whether we're going to consecrate or not because his promises before I come back, the glory of the latter house is going to be greater than that of the former. I'm going to hang on to that promise until I die, get Alzheimer's, or I'm caught up in the rapture. Amen. I probably told you this, but my daddy told mother a couple days ago, well, I guess it's time for us to die, and the Lord is coming to get us. And my mother looked at him and said, Jesus ain't coming right now. And he looked at her almost aghast and said, Esther, why would you say that? She said, because the Lord promised me I was going to see a harvest in the church before he came back. And I'm hanging on to that promise. We're going to see a harvest. Harry, if you want to die and leave, die and leave. I ain't interested in dying. I'm interested in interceding and doing everything I can to give birth to this thing that I feel in my spirit wants to live. Hallelujah. Did you hear what Victor said Sunday? He said he created the world with his word, but he saved the world with a wound. I love that, man. I love that. Raise your hands one more time. Lord Jesus. What a privilege it is to be in Bible class again. What an honor it is to just be sitting here, Lord, feasting on the richness of your word. And I'm asking you, God, to let that fresh hunger and that desire rise deep inside of us, Lord, to understand just because you aren't back yet gets me off the hook. I've made the agreement. I've drunk the wine. I've washed in the water. I've had your name called out over me. And I'm doing everything I can to listen to my pastor to get ready to please the bridegroom when he shows up. There are lots of things about Jesus I do know, but I do know this. He loves worship. I know he loves prayer. I know he loves repentance. I know he loves it when you're kind. Amen. That the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness, kindness. Against this, there's no law, no law, no law. I called the sheriff that was with us two years ago, amen, when we honored all of the law enforcement. And I said, I said, Chief, his name is Berg. I said, Chief Berg, I just driving down the road and I was thinking I had you on my heart. I just wanted to tell you that that we're believing God and praying with you and standing by you because I know you guys have a thankless job right now but nobody in First Church is criticizing you. We're grateful to live in a, a city when you call 911, someone shows up. And it's not just the police but the fire truck and the first responders. What a privilege that is to have that. <laughs> and and it's the chief... The chief was so gracious to me on the phone, but he said, Pastor Hoffman, I'm going to give you a phone number. He said, I just retired. He said, this is the new chief of police now, and gave me his number, and now we've contacted him. And I said, well, then I'll bet you're glad to be out of that desk and that chair. And he said, you ain't a kidding. He said, I'm so glad I'm not the chief of police now. And I 
thought, dear God, I don't ever want there to be a day when I say, I don't want to be the pastor now. I don't want to be a, a leader of the church. I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want that to happen. Amen. I don't know where all this is going, folks, but I do know this. Keep a sweet spirit. Be kind to one another and stay consecrated to your master. Because in an hour that you think not, the thief's coming. And he's going to violently snatch us out of here. <laughs> and I don't want to be on this planet when God takes the one thing out of it that means more to him than anything else. His bride. His bride. Amen. Lord Jesus, permeate this house. Sanctify this piece of real estate. Years ago, I heard Carl Hill pray a prayer that he wanted it to be a lighthouse. That old lady before she died told me that she had a vision of people standing at the baptistry and it literally went out in the parking lot waiting to get baptized. I thank God for these precious elders that dug this thing out of the rock and we're not about to get lazy with it and take it for granted now. This thing was crafted and created by sacrificing men and women and we're going to do our very best to stay true to you and to them and the legacy of this church family. And we're going to be ready for you when you come.